The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So still we're just just touching on many different aspects uh, of the law of karma, many different ways that we can approach it. So I'd like to go through a list that's based on the suttas, talking about the uh, specific karmic relationships between different types of behavior. And this can help to uh, stimulate questions on, really, what about this situation? What about that? So it can be a way just to, uh, um, to start thinking about practical daily life situations. <coughs> So there is, there is a sutta where the Buddha is talking about general patterns and if you engage in specific types of behavior, it has this result. Right? So one is, if a person engages in killing, it leads to a short life. And you can think of all different exceptions to that. But it does seem to be a general pattern. I remember going to, remember Archduke Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand? <coughs> he played a pivotal role in the history of European civilization. And when I was in the Czech Republic, I went to his mansion. And I knew known him from his being assassinated in to start World War I. Um, but I went to his, his castle, and it was just hallway after hallway after hallway of, of animals that he had killed and hunted. It was just hundreds and hundreds of uh, deer and antelope and bears and exotic African animals. I mean, just everything. It was just dead bodies, dead animals everywhere, mounted on the walls. And I thought, if, you know, if he had made that much karma in killing other living beings, somehow I wasn't surprised that it came back to him in quickly in this lifetime, and then someone hunted him down. Now, with all of these examples, it's possible to think of many instances where it seems like, well, that doesn't hold true. I know someone who's hunted all their life and they lived to be age 90. Or I know people who have been completely nonviolent and, and they were killed when, as a young person. So yeah, that's why you know, to, to fully understand the breadth of the law of karma does kind of go into past lives and future lives. But you can see maybe certain trends. Right? Uh, certainly within our own minds, you can see that it, it hardens the heart to intentionally kill another living being, whether it's a small being or a large being or I don't know how many people have ever uh, met people who have murdered other people. But it, it, it weighs heavily on a person's mind. I mean, is, you see the karma 
the comic effect of that. Uh, so I don't know, does anybody have any thoughts on killing and the results of killing? So let's, let's, if you have a war that's begun by politicians, let's say the politicians are motivated by greed and ego, more than hatred, motivated by greed and, and ego. And then they delegate to generals who may be motivated by duty or patriotism or fun and say, oh, now it's time to go. Uh, let's, let's, we've been planning for this. Let's put it into action, right? There's a little bit of enthusiasm there. So there may be motivating generals. And then you've got, let's say at the, the bottom of the rung, you've got the, the soldiers who are just there Either they've been drafted in our forest or they volunteered out of a sense of duty. But they're the ones who are doing the actual killing and they're the ones who are experiencing the, the basic level of horrificness. So who makes the worst karma? <laughs> huh? <laughs> okay, go for it. Yeah. Um, the person closest to having caused it. Like the actual soldiers. Who makes the bad karma for the killing? Yeah, I know, it would... Now, if you look at the actual results in people's lives, the guys with the PTSD are not the politicians and the generals. You know, it's the actual relatively innocent, you call them innocent, but they're not the ones who, who in instigated the war, but, but uh, the, the people who have to follow through with actual killing and then are... are inundated with this fear of being killed or harmed, they seem to, to reap the worst karmic results out of that. Right? And you look at, uh, you know, I mean, just interviews of, of people involved with, say, the Vietnam War, for example. Generals kind of, a, you know, they go on to lead lives relatively unscathed, mentally unscarred by the whole experience. Um, politicians, uh, well, I mean, that was a unique situation, but generally politicians um, are not, uh, they're not scarred by the experience of war. Uh, they may have other repercussions, political repercussions. So the one, it seems to be the one who's closest to the actual killing are the ones who 
reap the greatest uh, karmic results. Which is another reason why you shouldn't just follow politicians who are motivated by greed and ego. <laughs> One more good reason. <laughs> yes. seems obvious that the driver, for whatever reason, um, has not been paying careful attention to their driving. And um, it's uh, terribly unsettling, especially to me when I've dealt with traffic in, in the past, and, but unsettling in general. What would you say? About the type of comma that they make? Well, first of all, if they're, uh, if they're not paying close attention while they're driving and they hit another person or even an animal out of carelessness and then they say, oh, it wasn't my intention, that's not a valid a way to get out of taking responsibility for that. Right? Someone does something stupid because they weren't paying close attention to say, oh, well, that wasn't my intention to harm. Therefore, it's not really my fault. Therefore, I'm not responsible. I don't have to take responsibility for it. So no, what we mean by intention in terms of law of karma, if you're not, if you're not paying attention, then we're making karma based on delusion. And that still has repercussions, as we can see often. You know, if, we're, if we're acting with an unclear, confused, or agitated mind state, then um, we can leave a path of wreckage. <laughs> and we say, well, it wasn't my intention to harm anybody. So, well, I mean, that's one of the ways the English word doesn't correspond to the Pali word, jaitana. But no, you, you're not free of karma. So people are definitely making karma by not, uh, not paying attention. And then to make it worse by not taking responsibility for that and leaving the scene. Yeah, I would say that's... Because that, that takes a pretty strong intention. Like if you get in an accident and then you out of fear of the repercussions or whatever your mindset is, it takes a strong intention to, to leave a scene of an accident and not take responsibility for it. So that's going to, I would think, usually have some pretty strong negative consequences. Uh, yeah. um, I worked in a... Um, uh, a state psychiatric hospital for a number of years, and we had some men in there. That it just, they just happened to all be men, but uh, and many of them did some terrible things in various kinds of situations. And th there was one man who was, when he was 17 years old, he was 
with a woman and they had a, a baby and they were both doing crack and they were out of their minds with it and the baby was screaming and wouldn't shut up and he threw it against the wall and the baby died and they put him in prison for 17 years and then when he came out he seemed like a very he seemed like a very humble he was very sorry about it. He cried about it a lot. I mean, but I mean that could all be real and or not. But it, I was I was wondering if um, I mean if if the same situation as he didn't mean to do it. He was under drugs. Is that is that the same? Is that it, uh, being under drugs and in this real stressful situation? Is that the same as just being careless uh, in terms of? karma or my yeah yeah there's a whole range of mitig mitigating factors that come into play um, that will affect the result mm -hmm. so you if he was of clear mind and it made a clear premeditated intention to kill the baby out of hatred that would probably have the strongest result right mm -hmm. um, if it's an unclear mind um, if he was affected by the drugs, uh, which were affected his judgment, um, if it was just kind of reacting out of control, out of out of frustration, not being under control, and just then the intention with which it was done would be very fuzzy, much more fuzzy. Right? Doesn't mean that we. I mean, that's why li life can be dangerous. That's why not being mindful. You know, can be dangerous. Sometimes all it takes is one mistake, one slip of mindfulness, and then we're paying for it, that mistake for years. Yeah, that and obviously that's an extreme example, but um, the, you know, you can see the. Re I mean, karmic results are most most often seen in a person's own mind, right? Now, of course, it also manifested in him being incarcerated, right? So you can say, well, that's also part of the karmic result of doing that. But it's also, you know, there were intentions involved with taking the drugs. I mean, a huge, uh, probably thousands, thousands of individual acts of intentionally taking the drug or continue to take the drug or, you know, associated with the drug, right? So... So that's part of it, receiving the karmic results of that and taking responsibility for that. Just general level of impatience, right? That may just have to do with personality. Other people may take an equal amount of crack, but they don't throw babies against the wall just because their personalities are different. They've had different personal conditioning. All these factors come into play. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, last night you mentioned that there are certain actions which can be, I believe, amplified if they're um, given to certain people or types of lives. So, for instance, if you give alms to a dog versus alms to a monk, um, you know, giving alms to a monk would be kind of uh, an amplified comma. 
Um, we also see in Buddhism there's this sense of um, vegetarianism, so we're, we're not harming animals of the large variety or even maybe small, but we are harming plants. So I'm curious, how, mm, how does the life how does the worth of a life get determined in Buddhism and mm -hmm. how do we know which ones are more worth than others? Right. Also, just for clarification, I think I said if you give food to a dog, it's good karma, but if you give food to an enlightened being, enlightened being. it's much, you know, it's much better karma, but better, uh, far greater amplification of the result. Um, there are some monks where you don't get much good karma from. <laughs> but enlightened beings, you know, they uh, always, you can reliably make good karma with enlightened beings. Um, partly, it has to do with it takes simply to be born as a human being is considered the result of a fair amount of good karma already. Right? And, and when we have intentions towards other beings who have a certain amount of good karma, that tends to amplify our intentions. So it's not merely what we project, but also like what it hits and how, how, it, how it rebounds on us. It has to do with the amount of collected good karma in the other person or the situation as well. How you judge that is somewhat subjective. Right? There's probably some animals that may have, you know, may have more collective good karma than some human beings, right? But generally, you would say it, it already takes quite a bit of accumulated good karma to be born born in the human realm. Um, for people who have developed meditation to an extensive degree, there's a, a, a lot of collected results of good karma there. So the same intention, the same saying or doing the same thing towards uh, that person kind of amplifies the rebounded result. So if you're lucky enough to offer food to the Buddha, then that's considered one of the, you know, the, the greatest opportunities. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't offer food to dogs. And it doesn't mean we should just focus on, on the, the people with higher accumulations of good karma. But it is just one of those, it seems to be kind of a how it works, right? It's not just, it doesn't just seem to be an opinion or judgment, but it just seems to be how it works. There's certain things that can amplify our, our good and bad comma that we make. So that was one question. Then you asked about... I think it was all part of the same question. All so part of the same question. Yeah, so the yeah. vegetarianism versus animals. So there are, kind of going on from this and also having to do with killing and harming, is there are certain karmic acts which are considered so 
uh, so heavy that one's immediately reborn into hell. And this, it's like um, drawing the, injuring, like intentionally injuring a Buddha, killing an arhat or a fully enlightened being, killing one's father, killing one's mother, or causing a schism or a division in the monastic sangha. So these are, these are considered so, such heavy bad karma. When the, it says, one is immediately reborn in hell, the great earth opens up and swallows you. So this is, the, this is kind of the Buddhist form of hellfire and brimstone. The Lord comes down. You harm the Buddha, the Lord comes down and will swallow you up and you will drop right into the depths of hell. So you can interpret that however you, however you wish, but it is there in the suttas. So I bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> and before the next question, could I just follow up? Can you explain the rebounding effect as well? Yeah. So with rebounding, right, amplification, certain situations tend to amplify our intentions. Let's say all other factors being the same, you have the same intention. Certain situations will tend to amplify the results. Right? That way if you, for example, if you, int yeah, if you intentionally kill a, a human being, any human being, I mean, that's going to be extremely heavy, as we talked about. But if you intentionally kill a fully enlightened being, because of that accumulated purity of good karma, uh, it tends to amplify the result so that the, the consequences are far, far uh, worse than it would be if it was an average person. Some of this is more difficult to verify in our own personal experience. So, you know, you take it with the... Take it with a grain of salt. My question has to do, I guess, with how we think about comma in terms of how it, the, the effect it has on us, but we're subject to what other people do, and how does that, so when you talk about killing, you know, the, the enlightened person who was killed, who has lots of good comma, but was killed, or, you know, Martin Luther King or whoever may or may not, you know, have, have had good intentions and been doing good things but was still murdered by somebody else. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Like, comma doesn't keep bad things from happening to you necessarily. Right. Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, it can't. It, uh, it can help to deflect a certain amount of Lesser karma from ripening, yes. Um, last night I was talking about the first stage of enlightenment. Even at that point, the majority of the results of previous bad karma will no longer manifest. There'll still be some, but it will no longer manifest. And even though 
in the suttas it talks about you know killing an arha. I'm trying to actually think of an instance where someone intentionally tried to kill a fully enlightened being and and was successful. The only one I can th- the only one I can think of was Mahamogalana, who was one of the uh, the Buddha's right hand disciples, and he was uh, reportedly beaten to death by rivals from another sect. And they had an explanation for that, but uh, still, it seems a, you know, if if there's some comma that is just going to ripen, right? And uh, there's no real escape from it. Angulimala did become an arhat. That's an that's a very good example of. Someone who had, he had murdered 99, or in some case 999 people, and was out of frustration, he was, about, he was on his way to kill his mother. As the story goes, and the Buddha saw this, and said, well, if he kills his mother, then there's no hope. But, um, so the Buddha went and, was able to get his attention eventually and uh, get him to pay attention, get him to start practicing the Dhamma, stop killing, join the Sangha, and was became fully enlightened. So now, by so that's an extreme example of never give up hope, no matter what you've done in the past. You know, there is still possibility, a great possibility of being able to um, make some huge positive changes in our life. But even after being enlightened, there were times where Angulimala would go on alms round through the village and people would throw rocks at him, throw pot shards at him, and, you know, he'd sometimes come back with, you know, bloody wounds. And In that situation, you'd say, well, even though it was unpleasant, you're still receiving the results of, of the previous comma that he had made. You can see the connection. People still af- were afraid of him or hated him or you know, still a lot of animosity towards him. And, uh, but that level of receiving the bad comma, just having a few bloody wounds was far, far lighter, infinitely lighter than what he would have experienced if he hadn't done all that deep Dhamma practice. So all that relatively quick progress in the Dhamma, you know, it became this repository of of a a huge amount of good karma, good karma, vipaka, you know, the results of good karma. And that had a great buffering effect on the results of his, uh, the ripening of his past bad karma. Does that make sense? So if you've had a checkered past, quick, hurried, practice a lot of dhamma before it ripens. But what about people who have been working for good? I'm thinking of people like... Right, like, like Martin Luther like King. Like Martin Luther King, right. who are going to be targeted by the people who don't want to lose power, who are mm-hmm. greedy or whatever. 
is that I mean is that the result of somehow of his comma even though he's been doing many good things or is that the result of external things causes and conditions that are just playing out yeah both I mean certainly it's a result of if you have the intention to challenge the powers that be and certain established ways of behaving in society and you you challenge you say no this is not just I'm going to challenge this and you confront people with a lot of power or maybe you just confront people who don't have much power but they don't they don't like someone shaking up the uh, the way it has been right you confront those people and then they may you take the chance that they're going to respond out of anger and fear and aggression so that's a that's an intention and choice that one makes and an, it's a personal self sacrifice right you take the i mean he probably he and many people of of that same generation you know said that we're willing to put ourselves on the line because this is you know the there's we we feel it's worth it to to bring people's attention to this injustice and we want change now specifically in terms of did he do anything himself that would have led to being assassinated in terms of did he make some bad karma sometime that led to him being assassinated pretty hard to say i mean not that we can see I don't know every detail of his biography but uh yeah certainly certainly that you know that's that's kind of the the catch-all explanation and say oh it must have been something from past life and it's like it's true it's true and it's it's just hard to know you know uh a lot of things with you know specific karmic results it's difficult to pinpoint what the cause was or what the conditions you know the confluence of causes and conditions where they originated sometimes it's easy to see but often it's it's a bit more murky huh? is doing harm the is not taking action that allows harm to happen different karmically than causing harm it's different but it's not doesn't mean there aren't results i mean even doing nothing is coming from an intention not to act right it's like this idea of i'll just if i just don't do anything that i won't be making any karma no that's already making karma right by not acting or not intervening or not saying something that's already a, a decision that has karmic results Um, I had several questions, and one was, um, I guess, I'm going to keep them really short, though. Um, so the part about dogs versus an enlightened being, you kind of answered that, but, you know, I'm just really struck by how much we're learning. You know, we as humans are learning through science and technology, and whoa, everything's connected. Who knew? A lot of people. <laughs> but um, 
who this is um, the system of beliefs that we humans have created, and we don't necessarily know, you know, what other species are enlightened or not enlightened because we're not communicating in the same ways. We don't see the same things, and so I struggle with that a little bit. Um, you know, this is a system created by by humans, and so which which system? All of this, you know, all of our reality here, um, you know, how we see things, how we define things, whether it be Buddhism, Christianity, uh, Kabbalism, whatever, you know, that all of them are um, uh, structures created by humans at some point. And so, I don't know, I just like, I look at, at, at some members of the animal kingdom and I just, you know, I see a lot of wisdom, I see a lot of compassion, I see a lot of interdependence. Um, you know, I don't know if they're sentient or not. I don't know, you know, to what level of consideration. But I, so I bristle a little bit in thinking that um, gamifying <laughs> you know, karma response, like it's really, it feels huh? weird to say that there's a higher point value associated with this being or this thing than there is right. with this thing. And that feels uncomfortable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, and this is how uh, I kind of have been coming at it. I'm I'm endeavoring to be thoughtful about the precepts and um, and live my life as much as I can. And so, you know, I'm I'm making my my vegetarian food, and you know, yeah, I'm feeling bad about the plants that I'm chopping down or turning the soil over, and you know, I'm squashing some ants as I trounce through things, and then I'm vacuuming in my kitchen because there's garlic peels everywhere. And, you know, there goes a spider or two, you know. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, sorry about that. And so I'm I'm causing harm. My intention is to not cause harm. But inevitably, just living in this world, I am causing harm, you know. Whether it be, you know, flushing the toilet or just like any number of things I do on a daily basis. And so my intention is not to commit harm, but it's happening. And so... Is it, is it about thoughtfulness, about just like taking that in and feeling that? Is that really kind of the underlying goal or intention? It's just mm-hmm. to reflect. Okay. So the true value of the law of karma is that it is, it's supposed to be an objective natural law that is not bound by human society, whether humans are around or not, um, whether people believe in it or not, whether people ascribe to Buddhism or if they've never heard of Buddhism or they uh, have some other philosophy they live by. The way the Buddha talked about the law of karma, it is, uh, it's just a natural law in the same way that you may have other natural physical laws which uh, apply whether humans are around or not. And so the Buddha would describe the law of karma that way. So that it doesn't, it's, it's, it's not dependent on just, you know, how we interpret it in this particular culture or age. Now with the, some of that might, uh, might coincide with our opinions, and some of it might not. So in terms of different levels of different factors that would amplify or reduce the effect of our karmic intentions, uh, these are teachings that 
that I've inherited and to a certain extent I can you know, seem to make sense and verify in my own life. In terms of, you know, I mean, I love dogs too. Maybe I should have used a different animal. <laughs> but, but, uh, just, it also makes sense to me that when there's a, a, a great store of accumulated good karma in a person or even a situation or a group that um, you throw your intention into that, it has an amplifying effect. <coughs> now in terms of animals in the natural realm, I've lived in the jungle a lot, and so it, it helps to... Um, I don't have a lot of glorification of the animal realm. I love animals, but it's easy to idealize the animal realm. I mean, I generally humans, as bad as they are, still uh, have a, a lot of good things going for them compared to animals. So, yeah, it also makes sense to me that, you know, I don't overglow. <laughs> you know, the animal realms can be uh, also just full of... of killing and competition and you know a lot of the negative aspects that we see in human society are also there in the animal realm a lot of you know the there's a lot of of competition uh fighting animals for dominance it's not that they're all just living in harmony right? there's a lot of aggression there and it's not you know, it's not just about eating. It's about who's going to be dominant for mating, or whatever. Who's going to who's going to lead? You know, so there's some ego involved in there. So that's uh, that's part of it. Was there another aspect to your question at the end? Oh yeah. I remember during one of these long retreats that I was doing, walking through the forest, and no matter how carefully I walked, eventually I would step on an insect. And it was not my intention to harm, and maybe it didn't actually kill the ant, but I realized, you know, it was very difficult to go anywhere without stepping on an insect. In Thailand, ants are everywhere. Insects are everywhere, and it's a real, it's a real challenge. You really have to be mindful, to to be as careful as you can. But inevitably, you're going to accidentally step on an ant, or even if you're just sweeping a path, you may, you know, brush an ant over and it dies. So then you just have to reflect. Well, what was my intention in that? Part of my intention was just to to sweep the path. My intention was not to kill. My intention was to sweep the path. But was I being careless? Right? If I'm being careless in sweeping, it's not a, an excuse. It's not a way to not take responsibility. Oh, it wasn't my intention to kill. But, you know, if we're just being, if we're daydreaming and then we kill a bunch of ants in the meantime, then we still have to, we still bear some of that responsibility. But if I was really trying to be as mindful 
and aware as I could and still in the process of doing some ordinary task, an animal dies, an insect dies, then we don't bear the karmic responsibility for that. And this is one area where the Buddha's understanding of the law of karma differed from, say, the Jain uh, teachings. Jain teachings were more like, uh, no matter what your mind state was, if you kill the insect, you bear the karmic responsibility for that. You know? Whereas the, the actual action or the speech was paramount, where the, in the Buddha's understanding of kama, your intention and your mind state is paramount. Right? Of course, those intentions tend to lead to what we say and what we do, but, but there are some times where we, uh, th- what we do leads to a, a certain amount of harm but our mind state was actually pretty pure and not associated with harming at all. And so there's no, uh, there's no negative karma associated with that. Hey. Is, so uh, the question I'm asked on a surface kind of seems almost silly in this environment, but uh, is taking a human life ever appropriate? And the specific example mm-hmm. I'll use is, uh, I think all the time now of like an active shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, heaven forbid somebody walks in the door and <coughs> we can go through like a million different ways to disarm the person, or, but just for the simplicity of it, if, if any one of us were to take that person's life mm-hmm. or allow that person to take all 60 of our lives or however many are. Um, like is it ever appropriate mm-hmm. yeah it's a very good yeah. question one that seems to come up unfortunately more and more yeah. in America so is it ever first of all is it ever good karma to kill a human being right there are many people who either in war or in a situation like you're talking about would say, well, I saved other people's lives or I did a heroic thing by killing somebody else. Therefore, it's good karma. So the Buddha would say, anytime there is an intention to kill, it's never, it's never good karma. It's never wholesome. The intention to kill and harm is always unwholesome. However, intention and motivation are two very different things. Right? So we may intend to kill, but our, our motivation is to save everybody else's life. You know, if you're on an airplane and there's a hijacker and you happen to be in a position uh, to kill the hijacker in order to save everybody else's life, or you decide to do that, you know, say, well, it's safer just to kill them rather than try to hold them down. It's say, okay, I'll kill the hijacker, but I'll save all these other hundreds of people. There's not a whole lot, a lot of time to reflect in a situation like that. It's like, what are the karmic consequences of this? Right? But the, you know, in situations like that, people are often willing to take on, voluntarily take on the, the negative consequences that would come from that killing in order for the l- larger, better outcome. I mean, we'd call, uh, 
a, a, let's call a mass shooting a dilemma. Places people in a dilemma where, okay, you know that killing the killer, killing the potential uh, um, shooter is unwholesome. However, it has the greater benefit of saving all these other lives. So even though it's, it's some bad comma, it's still the lesser of two bad outcomes. So I'm willing to take that on. I'm willing to take on that bad comma um, for the greater benefit. And there are times in life where we are faced with dilemmas, hopefully not that extreme. But we all face certain dilemmas at different times in life where both outcomes seem to have be bad comma in some ways. <laughs> and it's like, well, which is worse? Okay, I'll try to do the, the lesser. You know, and I willing, I, I'm not being blind about it, but I'll just willingly take that on and, uh, you know, I'll just have to, you know, man up and take on the bad consequences of that. And hopefully it was worth it, you know, for the greater benefit. I can't hardly hear anyone. Um, when we're living in the age of AIDS, Ebola, other diseases that we 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 don't we haven't even charted yet, what is the karmic result of either inadvertently passing on a disease or intentionally doing so? Hey, Mark, can you hear me? I'll be right. Okay. Do you have some AA batteries by any chance? If you know you have a communicable disease and then you intentionally or just carelessly pass that on without taking real responsibility for that, that's pretty bad karma, especially, you know, I mean, then you knowingly create quite a lot of, uh, um, quite a lot of suffering for other people. Yeah, I mean, I, I know certain circumstances of people who have had AIDS and they continue to be sexually active <laughs> without telling th their partners. And that, uh, yeah, tr tremendous amount of of uh, suffering that it can cause other people. Is that addressing what you're yes. talking about? It does. Yeah, absolutely. Can monk what? Can a monk defend themselves? <laughs> Don't test me. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, that's well, that's good. Just a fair that warning. That works pretty well. Fair warning. <laughs> All of our kung fu training uh -huh. just yeah, yeah. And it springs up. <laughs> I can't control it. Um, 
Yeah, we can. We, we're allowed to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. Normally, I mean, I haven't, I haven't ever had heard a, a situation where they've they've had to to f- you know, fight their way out of a situation. Um, there's a couple instances where I know monks have been attacked and even killed, but I don't. I didn't hear if they were tried to fight back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are allowed to defend ourselves. Of course, we would try to take the path of least harm, mm-hmm. either by trying to calm the situation down through saying or doing something, or running away. You know, if that would be the the, the way to to alleviate violence. Um, trying to physically nullify the other person, you know, just by holding them down without actually hurting them. It would be a pretty extreme situation if if we had to, you know, physically harm somebody. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to it's hard to imagine a situation like that. I mean, then we're starting to talk about extreme situations like a, mm-hmm. a, sh- a shooter coming into the room or a hijacker on a plane, right? And what, what that would yeah, entail. I don't know where I heard that. But I just was oh, and um, let's see, there was another question. Mm. Oh, okay, about karma. So, like, um, when I had a fire... I had a fire in my cement house, and the house didn't burn. But I just felt like, wow, I just paid off a whole bunch of karma. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, if that thought helped to alleviate your suffering, it did. It did. I thought, wow, that's like the lottery of karma. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's difficult to always know, but there is a certain amount of. Okay, if we've if we've made some unwholesome karma in the past, and it manifests in our lives through an unpleasant experience, then the s- skillful response to that unpleasant experience is, oh well, thank goodness that uh, I have the opportunity to uh, to uh, work through this now, right? So it's kind of done with, over and done with. I mean, the thing is, if past lives is the way things are, and we've all had infinitely, p- infinite amount of past lives, beginningless time, then we've all done an infinite amount of both good and bad karma, wholesome and unwholesome. So uh, the ripening of, of that karma can you know, manifest in a whole range of different ways and intensities and it's difficult to predict you know, exactly when it's going to happen. And like I said last night, not everything we experience is a result of our previous comma. Unless you say, well, we had the comma to re- be reborn. You know, we had the, uh, um, the bawatana, the desire to continue to exist. And therefore, everything we experience in life is indirectly a, a result of that karma. Say, okay, well, that's true. But there are other forces of causes and effect at work as well. 
besides you know the our own stream of consciousness it may just you know someone else may have been careless for example may have oh. been struck by lightning that started the fire but it's always a it's always a skillful way to look at an unpleasant situation instead of complaining about it you think oh how wonderful get to pay off some good bad karma here i don't handle all my situations like that <laughs> <laughs> um Nhat han tells the story of um some buddhist monks that set fire to themselves to protest the Vietnam War. And I'm wondering, how does that work with Kama um, in that they were leading a cel- you know, the mm-hmm. life of a monk, and how does that become justified? So that would be another case of willing to take on, willing to take responsibility for the results of killing, even if it's killing oneself, for a, a greater positive effect. Now, I don't, we don't know the mind state of, say, the, f- the, f- the first monk who um, self-emulated, uh, that caught the world's attention in the Vietnam War, in Vietnam. I don't know his mind state, but he left a note which was quite moving. So as it in- indicates the state of mind that he was in. And there was so much suffering going on in Vietnam at that time, in that society, for various causes, right? Uh, that it just seemed that the, the world was just not paying attention. How can we get people's attention to stop the madness? And so extreme situations then sometimes lead to people taking extreme means to try to grab the world's attention. And if someone's willing to sacrifice their life for that, then... Sacrificing one's life is, in and of itself, it's not good karma. It's still killing a living being, and there, there is the intention to kill. But the motivation is, is to, motivation is very positive. Motivation was to try to bring, get the world's attention to try to alleviate the greater suffering in that society. And it certainly got the world's attention. Thank you. Um, this isn't related to the taking of a uh, life, but I, I've just heard from other traditions some um, talk of like great masters or people of high attainment uh, taking on or working out the karma of others. Is there anything about that in Buddhism? Or? No. I know what you mean, but I've never found any any instance of the Buddha talking about that in the suttas or even... Living masters talking about that in any way. It does seem to be more s- individual streams of consciousness, mm-hmm. even though they're obviously kind of very all intertwined, but more or less individual streams of consciousness. And we can't give our good karma to anybody else. We can't take on anybody else's bad karma. Now we can we can visualize. You know, we can visualize taking on the suffering of others and purifying that. And, and that's more of a meditational exercise based on perceptions. 
But really, that's still working within our own consciousness, right? It's not literally taking on on um, someone else's negative karma or 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 sharing our good karma with others. So then in, in that frame, uh, the practice of sharing the merit is also something we do for the effect on our own mind. Um, definitely, it has a positive effect on our own mind. Sharing of merit is a right from the time of the Buddha has been a Buddhist tradition. And when someone passes away, it is quite possible their consciousness is still around for a while. Right? Even though their body's gone, the the consciousness is still pretty similar to the way they were a week ago or two weeks ago. And um, they may have not, they may, through attachment, they may, their consciousness may still be hanging around their family and friends. And if they see their family going and making, making offerings or doing Dhamma practice, or sometimes in Thailand people will ordain, you know, just to make good karma in order to share that good karma with um, their relative who has just passed away, if that consciousness is still around, the consciousness of the dead person sees that, that can bring up a lot of joy um, in their minds, and that can be beneficial for their rebirth. So it's not that you can transfer your good karma or the results of your wholesome intentions. You can't transfer that to somebody else, living or dead, but indirectly you can bring up joy in another person's mind through through that that effort and so in that way it's considered a, quite a it's still considered worth doing because you never know you know if your consciousness of your parent or your grandparents are still around uh, so it, it's a it's a good tradition to do and it's always beneficial for the people who are actually doing it right the idea of um, you know, out of respect and love for this person who has died, I'm going to, you know, do something very special and then either symbolically, you know, make the determination whatever results of the wholesome karma that I've made through this meditation or ordination or offerings, I offer it all to, you know, my friend or relative who has passed away. And so, at the very least, it's very good for the person who who does that. Right behind you. Yeah, I have a question on on hunting um, and 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 white-tailed deer. Like in, in the Northeast United States, we have such a the land use patterns have uh, resulted in very high deer densities that prevent. Forest, some forest communities from coming back, which, uh, you know, all sorts of mammals and birds no longer will have a home. And uh, some people hunt with that intention to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. And how, uh, you know, I, I just struggle with this, you know, this hunting is not, you know, it, it seems to me that there's a place for it in that situation, but I, I don't know how to resolve it. I don't hunt, but I know people who do, and, and 
and that's part of their intention as they hunt is to provide you know they realize there's an overpopulation of white-tailed deer mm-hmm. and uh, and right now we have we don't have any way to control that and so you know and so yeah. I, I can't really you know for me to speak to them that their hunting is not you know it's bad comma it's like well I don't know that mm-hmm. I mean I, I feel like I don't know that reminds me of the fireside cartoon there's a there's a deer standing up hiding behind a tree and then you see a hunter walking in the distance and the, the two deer behind two trees and one deer says why don't they thin their own damn herds yeah. <laughs> 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 but it points to this moral dilemma that these moral dilemmas arise in life, right? Well, you think, even if for the greater good of the environment, it entails killing certain animals, do you do it? It doesn't mean it's good karma, but you may make the decision to do it out of for, for the larger good or larger health or balance of the environment. And usually there are enough people around who aren't worried about the law of karma. And there's plenty of volunteers, usually. In New Zealand, we have an interesting situation where there are no mammals native to New Zealand except for a, a bat. And yet, all of these mammals have been introduced. Deer, possums, pigs, dogs, cats, and they're all doing a tremendous amount of environmental damage in one way or another. And so the environmentalists and the hunters form this weird uh, bond where they're encouraging and supporting each other. (laughs) And the ones who are trying to bring the New Zealand ecosystem back into a balance they will, if they see wild deer or whatever, right? they'll tell hunters about it and, s- and encourage them to go in and hunt. Usually the environmentalists and the hunters in the, in the U.S. are a bit at odds with each other. In New Zealand is quite the opposite. And so then, for people who work for the Forest Service, for the example, in New Zealand, They care about the environment. They tend to be people who love animals. They love nature. And yet a good portion of their job is killing, is killing. Killing possums, killing rats, killing stoats, killing ferrets, killing, you know, mice, all, everything. Deer, pigs. So I know, you know, there are some who who just find they can't, they don't want to do that anymore. You know, they just make the decision, I don't, you know, I know it's good for the greater good, but I don't feel good about it. So you have to, you know, pay attention to your own heart. What do you, what do you feel good about, right? We may be willing to, to occasionally, we may be willing to kill some rats in order to save birds' eggs, you know, birds that have ground nesting habits. And we, we, you know, willingly kill rats who might eat the eggs. But if year after year you're kind of killing all these different animals, including larger animals, 
then after a while, you don't you just don't feel good about it anymore. Or a lot of people don't. They just say, I just don't, just doesn't feel right. And uh, if other people want to do it, go ahead, but I've, I've had enough. So you just have to you know, trust what feels right. And life is full of dilemmas. Twice, you know, the world's never going to be a perfect place. Samsara is never going to be solved. The Buddha never, <laughs> never said that that was our objective, you know, to, to solve all of, the, all of the problems of society and the environment. We try to do the best we can, but, you know, it's also just good to remind ourselves it's never going to, it's never all going to be perfect. Right? It's never all the problems are never going to be solved. So that's that's not the main emphasis of you know where we're going to place our our aspirations and our our goals are more like accepting a certain amount of imperfection and dilemmas in life and then and finding liberation within that. It, it seems that you know their intention in the hunt hunting is to a more diverse ecosystem, and, uh, which you know, I think is a good thing. But it, so it's, it just comes down to values, I guess, where, where, where those values are placed and, and the intentions that, that uh, I would choose to maintain that. But values, are, it's such a nebulous, I mean, that's, that, that's not a good term. I don't think well, you know, it, it's like what I said, if you if you feel for the greater good of the environment, you're willing to hunt and kill, then you know, there's usually enough people around who are happy to do that or at least okay with doing that. Just uh, wanting a little bit more. You've kind of spoken close to this, but... It seems like you've been suggesting, and this makes sense to me, that it's really the net result. Like there is a cumulative or a, an impression on the mind stream or this continuity of consciousness, one moment conditioning the next. Because you haven't directly addressed, like, so there is some kind of karmic impression based on the quality of intention and quality of a motivation that somehow gets carried forward. And so I'm wondering, like, because there are a lot of different questions, different circumstances, but it's sort of the same question, which is what's the cumulative impression, you know, positive, negative, mixed. And uh, so is that a correct way, Ajahn, as you understand it, that somehow our participation, the motivation, the intention, the way the mind is participating in the moment the attitude, the values that are alive, affecting motivation and attention, leaves an impression so that the mind that's conditioned that arises in the next moment has been conditioned by that? Is that how you think about it, or the, you understand that tr the tradition talks about it? It certainly leaves an impression on our mind, our stream of consciousness. And like I said in the Dhammapada, very first line is, mind is all phenomena are preceded by mind. So what we consider reality 
is to a great extent, at least to a great extent, and maybe entirely what we project. So if, you know, we tend to, conventionally we tend to think of an external world, we do good and good things happen to us from, from other sources, right? Sort of uh, oversimplification. But essentially we are making imprints within our own stream of consciousness. And then those imprints literally create our reality how we perceive things the the habits of of the habits that we form uh that create further intentions you know, which lead to how we perceive things what we project our experience of reality our experience of of amounts of pleasure and pain i think you could make a case for it's all internal all of the whole law of karma is merely imprints on our stream of consciousness and that creates the reality that which we project, even though it feels like something is happening to us. It's really, it's happening within our own stream of consciousness. Now that gets, that's, uh, it gets pretty weird when you start to look at life like that. Uh, but I think you c ultimately you could make a good case for that. I don't know if that's exactly what you were referring to. Right. Oh, there's that too. Up in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we call it a supercomputer, but really it's a whole team. <laughs> they're watching, they're calculating. It's like, Ajahn, Ajahn, good, good. Good, bad, good, bad. Just <laughs> sending down. All right, you give him good alms food today. All right, he deserves that. All right, all right. No, he gets bit. Wait, 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 wait. Huh? I just have yeah, kind of an add-on question. Add-on question about that, what he was just saying. So um, we were just, my daughter and I were just talking about this last night, interestingly enough. So um, when you do something and it's not a good thing, no one else sees it. All right. You know you did it. All right. No one else knows, though. Yeah. You carry that energy with you and you project right. something out and people feel it. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I do. So the I do. It's you like make, if you it's so if you make a bad comma in the forest, but there's no one around. <laughs> it's so true, though. I mean, I we were talking <laughs> about that because a lot of times people any operate. Yeah. Does mm -hmm. anybody hear the sound? But I mean, does it make a sound? I know that. That's all I can. Um, yes. And s I mean, that's this is what we're what's important, most important about the law of karma, whether anyone sees it or not, mm -hmm. whether. Whether, we're, we're, whether we've ever heard of the law of karma or not, whether we're mindful or aware of, what we, of the karma that we're making or not. Mm -hmm. It's a natural law that has these you know, basic patterns to it. So that, um, like in that circumstance that you're talking about, a person knows that they've yeah, uh, done something, yeah. or maybe, 
Maybe you, maybe you steal something or, or you do something. No one else knows about it. But you know, mm -hmm. and that will change you. It that will, will change how you yeah. relate to yourself, mm -hmm. certainly, and probably how you present yourselves to others. Other mm -hmm. people can feel that, mm -hmm. and it makes a difference. Hi, um, you mentioned uh, Jaitana earlier being kind of intention, being something that maybe is decided or contemplated about, but I'm just wondering if there's a concept for what's below that, um, and specifically my, I guess, understanding of desire and how that kind of permeates everything that's ever happened kind of in my in my view of things, there's some kind of parallel to that. Well, yeah, desire would flow out of jetana. Jetana would be a movement of the mind which would then could, you know, manifest. If, there's a, if the, the movement of the mind is towards grasping, and clinging or acquiring, then yes, it can manifest as specific desires. But not desires kind of as wants, but desires as 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 movements in the universe, I guess. Everything from, you know, a rock falling to um, hydrogen and oxygen combining to I'm having, I'm hungry, I have the desire for food, so kind of of an all-encompassing um, it seems to me from my point of view is an it's an all-encompassing understanding and I'm wondering if there's any other concepts like that or is that kind of the base foundation that jaitana or mm -hmm. is that directly related with desire well that the Buddha wouldn't refer to those things as desire or that's oh. not the way that that desire is, is talked about okay. uh, in, in our tradition. It's a bit more of a, yeah, in the way that I had mentioned before, but ram bound up with ignorance and craving and clinging. Yeah, maybe there's not a, a good word for it. I don't know. Atoms at atom attraction. Atomic attraction. Well, more than that, more of... Anything you've ever wanted to do has been a result of desire in my mind. Anybody, anybody, any action any person has ever taken. So if you're hungry, you're saying it's a desire rather than a need. It's a desire to stop that feeling. That pain of, of hunger. To get a good feeling, what you get from <laughs> food. Yeah, that, that part's very much part of... Uh, um, and I see that as if you have an un, you know, we're, it's just what we consider normal life is trying to experience pleasure. Well, I see that. I'm not sure if this is the direct parallel, but that is samsara. You know, the birth of say hunger, the recognition, the getting of it, and then the death, and then that's maybe parallel to life itself, and. I mean, almost all desires have that same flow, circular flow, of wanting something, being aware of it, getting it, and it kind of going away, and then wanting more. Mm -hmm. 
That's the essence of samsara. Well, it's it's part of it. We don't have to be stuck with that forever, though. Yeah, and that's why through paying attention to intentions, the movement of the mind moment by moment, we're not bound by past habits. We can break that cycle. Versus the necessary fulfillment of the bodily needs as human beings being subject to uh, the physical form. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that, yeah, there's something in this conversation that I think I'd benefit from hearing teased out. Like there's a certain degree of this that's necessary. We will always have to eat. We will always have to, however, we don't always have to crave the new ice cream that I crave. (laughs) So, (laughs) there are, renunciation comes in many forms, right? So, one of the definitions of right intention is the intention to renounce. And renunciation can simply mean giving up attachment to opinions. It can mean giving up attachment to whole lifestyles. But even if we're dedicated to renunciation, you know, some things we actually give up the, the thing or the action. Other things, we just have to focus on giving up the, the attachment to those actions. Because we still need to eat. Yeah. Right? And there may be a lot of attachment around eating, but we can't just give up eating, right? We have to give up, we have to focus on the attachment to eating, seeing the causes and results and how am I getting stuck in that while still eating on a daily basis, right? And sleeping, for example. We may be quite attached to sleeping. It's a fun thing to do. And we need to do it. We can't just give up sleeping we can, we can give up excessive sleeping in the same way we can give up excessive eating, but we can't give it up completely. So we have to, you know, within still sleeping and needing to sleep almost every day, then how do we give up our uh, attachment to that? And then there's other things that we do give up, but maybe we haven't given up the attachment, right? It's like you go on a meditation retreat and there's no ice cream. You've actually, at least for 10 days, you've given up that thing, but you haven't given up the attachment. It still manifests in in terms of, you know, memories, visions, fantasies. It's like, oh, as soon as this retreat ends. 
right? So, so we, it's giving up the attachment, which is the most important thing. But if for for many things, if we can give up the thing itself or the activity, then it makes the attachment more clear. It makes it more clear to us. Often, if we're constantly gratifying our desires, we don't realize how attached we are to something. You know, it's like if everything's always just the right temperature. We don't realize how attached we are to comfort until you, know, you go to Thailand and it's just always physically uncomfortable because it's so hot and humid. Right? And then you realize, I was really attached to <laughs> comfortable temperature. Right? Um, or, you know, there's a whole range of examples you can think of. It's like, as long as we're being gratified on a regular basis, it's only when we try or experiment going without it for a while, then we see how attached we are to it kind of brings it to the surface. And so that's the value of that level of renunciation. But ultimately, it is the giving up the attachment for things. Uh, whether we give up that thing or not, it's giving up the attachment to it, which is the most important thing. Now sometimes sometimes you know, people f- fool themselves as well. They say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not attached to money. I, you know, rich people can say that. You know, it's like rich people say, I'm not attached to money. Say, well, yeah, well, try giving it all away and then see if you're really not attached to it. You know, when we have something, a lot of it, then, then it's easy to say we're not attached to it uh, because we haven't really challenged ourselves. We haven't really tested ourselves. Is are, I, I like what you're saying, and, 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 and in my humble opinion, it it's, can be a good thing to want to live our life in a different way so that there, there will be less suffering. Are there any potholes or risks on this path in terms of becoming attached to want to achieve something or uh, uh, have, have more, uh, accumulate more merit? For, for ourselves so that life will be better or you, you, you can understand what I'm saying or yeah at every st- at every stage of even living an admirable life guided by the Buddhist teachings at every stage there's the possibility of identifying with it becoming attached to it and then ruining it a little bit you know it doesn't mean we nullify the wholesome karma but we may not, we create a little unwholesome karma by identifying with it or becoming attached to it. It's always possible at every stage, you know, right from the beginning to more ref- much more refined levels. So, yeah, you always have to be village vigilant in, in watching. The mind's a very tricky thing. The habit of uh, attachment and identification and ego gratification is, is so deeply ingrained. As soon as we're kind of practicing really well in this area, then it kind of sneaks in from behind. It's like, oh, there I got trapped again. So it's always something you have to watch out for. I have a question. Um, 
Let me give you a little background, then the question will be understood. I have a sister who I really love, I really care about, and she makes really, from my vision, poor choices. She gets hurt easily from these choices and whatever. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there anything I can do to help her in her developing better karma for herself? Yes, berate her and tell her how stupid she is. No, I've learned that that doesn't help. I've already changed that that one. You tried that already. Okay. (laughs) I have done that. Now I don't do that anymore. All right. So we can always be a good example, right? And never underestimate the power of simply being a good example without trying to change anybody else, without you you just (laughs) thinking that we're in a position to help somebody else and we know better is fraught with potential ego investments and miscalculations. And sometimes we're right and sometimes we're actually wrong, right? But simply trying to be the best example that we can be and letting go of of trying to change somebody else can actually be effective. Yeah. Yeah, she's already, you know, acknowledged some of that that I some of the changes I've made. My concern is her getting actually hurt. I mean, physically hurt by right. the choices she makes. And you know, you have to choose time and place. Choose your words carefully, time and place. If it's a situation where someone's going to on the verge of making a bad mistake that they're going to have to pay for and, and experience repercussions you know, f- for a while, and you can kind of see with some clarity, then uh, it's worth intervening. What? It's worth intervening yeah. and, and, and saying something and trying to have positive effect. And that can be you know, as a valid expression of caring, especially if it's actually coming from caring and not coming from uh, judgmental, I know better, you're, you know, you're screwing up your own life, I'm wiser, therefore listen to me. Right? But if it's actually coming from, from caring, then it can save somebody else from making bad karma. Thanks. Okay, last question, then then we should probably maybe stretch a bit, (laughs) do some walking meditation. I just had a clarifying question about the first line of the Dhammapada. Um, Which Pali word is there being translated as mind, and can we define that a little bit more specifically? Oh, and that one, I don't know, is it mano or jitta? It might be mano. Mano, I think. Uh There's a number of, of Pali words that we translate as mind or consciousness that are more or less synonymous but used in different consciousness. Vijnana is another one. Mm-hmm. But I think in that, I'm not a Pali s- scholar, so most often I'll read, it, read the suttas in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in that context it was mano. Oh, okay. Well, that, all of that uh, resulted just from bringing up the idea of killing. (laughs) And that was just one of 16 that I was going (laughs) to talk about. So I don't don't think we're going to get through all my material. But 
Um, why don't we take a, let's take a break, stretch, move around a little bit. Maybe uh, if you want to do some mindful walking and we'll gather here in 3.15. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.